From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Researchers identify a new risk from air pollution. It seems to affect mental health. Children who lived in polluted areas were more likely to have a dispensed medications broad group of psychiatric illnesses. The risk of dispensing at least one of these medications increased with 9%, comparable to, for example, cardiovascular disease. Also, some researchers say that exposure to glyphosate, the most heavily applied herbicide, is also associated with damaging health effects. Glyphosate exposure was correlated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a rare form of cancer and there was sufficient evidence that glyphosate could induce DNA damage. Pollution, weed killers, and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A breakthrough study from Sweden has found air pollution is linked to mental disorders in young people. For years, science has known that pollution from smokestacks and exhaust pipes can promote diseases, including heart disease and asthma. But now, by cross-referencing pollution exposure and psychiatric medication records of children and adolescents in Sweden, researchers say bad air appears to be bad for mental health. Joining us to discuss the study is lead author Anna Udin. She's a researcher at Umeå University in Sweden. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell me, how did your study work? You sampled a, well, a pretty large population of, of people. I think it's, what, a half a million or so. Yes, it is. Um, we, as a researchers, we're a bit lucky in the Scandinavian countries because we have these nationwide covering registries. For example, the register I used is a registry of dispensed medications, which covers everyone living in Sweden, or at least everyone registered as living in Sweden. And every time anyone dispenses a medication, it's recorded there. So we use that registry and we combine that with the registry of where people live. And we combine that with a model of air pollution. That's a national model in order to look at air pollution and dispense medications for psychiatric disorders in children and adolescents. So what kind of pollutants are we talking about and how common are these? Well, we looked at NO2, PM10, and PM2.5. And NO2 is usually seen, at least in our country, as a marker for vehicle exhaust. And PM10, which we present in the article, is particles, which can come from many different sources. So I would say that it's basically from traffic. And what did you find here in your study? We saw that children who lived in polluted areas were more likely to have a dispensed medications broad group of psychiatric illnesses. We saw that for an increase of 10 micrograms per cubic meter in NO2, the risk of dispensing at least one of these medications increased with 9% if you look at the overall estimate. We looked at this in four different regions, but the overall estimate was 9%. It's comparable to what we have seen for, for example, cardiovascular disease, the risk increase. So what you're saying is that there's a, this may not be causal, but there's definitely some sort of correlation, a link between levels of air pollution 
and the amounts of psychiatric medications that are being dispensed in those populations. Yes, in our population, we saw that clearly. Uh, we can't, can never know for sure that it's causal, but there was definitely an association. And this association goes down to actually very low pollution levels, as I understand it. Yes, we looked at both in rural areas and urban areas, and we saw the same association basically everywhere, independent of how we looked or what we adjusted for. We've done our best to rule out any other factor, but we can never be entirely sure, of course. So specifically, what are the kinds of mental health disorders that you were looking at in relation to this pollution? Yeah, it was um, medications in a broad group of medications for psychiatric disorders. And it ranges from very mild symptoms or, for example, sleeping disorders or uh, sedative medicines to antipsychotic medications. So it's a very broad and we can't separate these from each other based on the data we have. So we can't say if it's a certain medication that drives the association or if it's all the medications. So that's what we want to do next, of course, to apply for more detailed data on the medications. So you could perhaps show links between the air pollution exposure and depression or anxiety or autism or psychosis, that sort of thing, on a very specific basis, but not yet. Yes, yes, exactly. Your research is really intriguing because typically looking at psychiatric disorders, uh, people think about uh, genetics, they think about what might be going on socially in the family, is there trauma? And now your research would indicate that we should also look to environmental factors. Yes, I think that, I mean, if uh, we uh, see these kind of results in other studies, it could definitely probably influence how we look at mental illness, that the environment could play an important role. Maybe the awareness that it might be environmental factors could help reduce stigma, for example. I'm not sure, but hopefully. How do you think your work changes the way we might be thinking about regulating air pollution? I think that, I mean, when regulators and policy makers think about this, they usually take into account the health costs of air pollution and weighs it against the costs of reducing air pollutions. But these kinds of health issues are not included in those cost calculations. We know that air pollution can get into the brain and cause inflammation and that psychiatric disorders can be caused by inflammation. So I think that there is a need for these kind of large epidemiological studies and I think there will be more to come in the next few years. Anna Odin is a researcher at Umeå University in Sweden. Thanks for taking the time with us today, Anna. Thank you so much. It's been four decades since Congress approved the original Toxic Substances Control Act. Now, in a rare display of bipartisanship, both houses of Congress have passed the Frank R. Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act, a long-awaited overhaul of what's often referred to as TSCA. President Obama is expected to sign the measure into law, and when he does, the Environmental Protection Agency will gain more powerful and broader authority to review and regulate new and existing chemicals for safety. Cheryl Hogue, Assistant Managing Editor of Chemical and Engineering News, joins us now to help us understand the details. Welcome to the program, Cheryl. Hi, Steve. It's good to be here. So 
as I understand it, the chemical industry was pretty comfortable with this law and wasn't much interested in changing it. What motivated them to get involved with a rewrite here? I think there are several things that happened. Chemical companies began to realize that consumers are losing trust in the products that they make. They want consumers to feel good about the products, the chemicals that are in products that we use every day, whether it's laundry detergents or toys or just solvents that we might use to get grease off of things. So they're concerned that chemicals in the United States are not reviewed for their safety. A lot of people don't know that, that no government agency has checked on chemicals for the most part. And so they want a stamp of approval from the federal government to tell consumers, hey, this is safe to use as intended, kind of like pesticides are, that these have been looked at and determined that they're okay to use. Second is the Obama administration really kick-started this back in 2009. Lisa Jackson, who was President Obama's first EPA administrator, came out with a plan for changing this law and and started working with industry and saying, what do you want you know, out of this? And how can we get some more information so that we can determine whether chemicals really are safe? So how does this legislation differ from the original Toxic Substances Control Act? Steve, there are a few points that are really big. One is that EPA can actually get information about chemicals so they can assess this. This has been very difficult for the agency to do simply because the old law made it very cumbersome for EPA to get that information. The second big change that this law makes is it actually gives EPA very clear authority that if a chemical poses a risk to human health or the environment, EPA can actually regulate it. It can ban it, it can restrict it, it can require labeling. That's something that was in the old law, but in practical terms, EPA couldn't use that authority. So now the new law says that the EPA must look at all chemicals, but I'm doing, trying to do the math here, Cheryl. I, <laughs> there's like, what, 50, 60, 70,000 chemicals now in use. I mean, how long is it going to take to do this? That's a really good question. I've heard estimates of up to 35 years. And the question of how many chemicals are actually on the market today is also a really good question. And EPA is required to determine that. I've heard of estimates as low as 8,000. So hopefully with this new authority, EPA will be able to ask chemical companies, hey, are you still selling this stuff? And they'll get that information and we'll have a better number. There are thousands of chemicals out there, but in particular, what group of chemicals are of great interest that will now come under the scrutiny of the EPA that was well, more or less exempt before? Well, asbestos comes to mind. Now, here's a known human carcinogen. EPA actually tried to ban this in 1989, but the, the regulation was challenged in court, and the court overturned this regulation. That's because the old law said that EPA had to pick the least burdensome option for regulating. A company can always come up with some other option that EPA hasn't chosen that it can argue is less burdensome. So EPA's ban on asbestos, a known human carcinogen, got overturned in 1991. And I think that that chemical is ripe for EPA action. I also think that there are a group of solvents that EPA has been working on under the Obama administration that may pose risks to people, and EPA was going to try to regulate them under the old law, and I think they're going to try to regulate them under the new law and be much more successful. 
So who are the winners in this new legislation? I think they're a group of winners. I hope the American public is the number one winner. I hope that this means that the federal government will have a better chance at looking at chemicals and determining which are okay for us to use, so we have a little bit better idea about that. The fact that EPA will actually be able to take some of these chemicals off the market if they pose a risk to human health or in the environment is huge. And I also think the winners are chemical companies because they're getting a lot of what they wanted in this law. This is a Republican Congress, and they certainly have listened to industry. But I think the chemical industry really wants people to feel better about the chemicals that they're buying in products. So some consumer groups say that this legislation really doesn't go far enough. Yes, they're very concerned that this law will handcuff states once EPA starts looking at a chemical. They can't take any action. They think that states need to be the great backstop to when EPA doesn't take action, just like they have for the last, oh, maybe 10 years. So we have a divided government, Democratic president, a Congress, which through time has been fairly well divided. How did a bipartisan deal get struck for this? Well, the man for whom the bill is named, Frank Lautenberg, was a senator from New Jersey, a Democrat. He was a big champion of chemical safety. He had a lot in common with a senator from another state that is a big chemical producer. Of course, New Jersey is where Frank Lautenberg's from. And uh, that was David Vitter from Louisiana. Yeah, Vitter's a Republican, of course. That's correct. And they worked together and they hammered out a bill three years ago. And they released that bill in May of 2013. Now, two or three weeks after that bill was introduced, Frank Lautenberg died. And then the question became is, can we keep this momentum going, this political momentum on this? And stepping into the breach was Senator Tom Udall from New Mexico. And he and David Vitter worked on this bill, and they worked it out. It's pretty amazing in an election year that they worked out what can be called an environmental law. Cheryl Hogue is Assistant Managing Editor of Chemical and Engineering News. Cheryl, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Steve. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth, and I'm Steve Kerwood. Big agricultural chemical makers are getting bigger with a new wave of mergers unfolding that could take the number of major companies that control most of the market from six to just four. This is already a fairly consolidated industry, so to find out what's going on, we called up Lou Whiteman, a senior analyst at The Street, a financial media company. Lou, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. First, go down the list for me, uh, the mergers that are on tap and the ones that have already taken place. Sure. We have uh, ChemChina is buying... Syngenta for $43 billion. We have Dow and DuPont getting together in a $130 billion deal, after which they're going to split off their combined agriculture assets into a separate company. And most recently, we have Bayer offering $62 billion for Monsanto. 
Yeah. So why are these major mergers and acquisitions happening at this point? Well, there's a confluence of different trends that are causing this. For one, a lot of these companies for years found growth by going into emerging markets. And slowly but surely, that is sort of played out. So the next step for growth in a maturing industry is to consolidate among yourselves. You also, you've had a combination of weak prices for corn, soybeans, and wheat that have hurt companies like Monsanto. In Monsanto's case, a U.S. company, the strong dollar makes its products more expensive overseas. Monsanto missed second quarter earnings. Revenue was down, I think, 12% year over year. And they warned that extreme headwinds would eat into results for the rest of 2016. So you have companies that are both starved for growth to begin with, and then a market that isn't growing right now. So they're looking at other options. Lou, why is the agricultural industry hurting so much right now? There are more and more people on the planet. We keep eating every day. What's the problem? Yes, you're right. And a lot of parts of the world, there is global recession, or there is at least cutting back in different markets. And it's just we've had weird growing seasons. This is El Nino. We're just at a moment where agriculture is not growing, but in a longer term trend, certainly this is a growth market. Now, recently there was a group of non-governmental organizations here in the United States that uh, sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice urging that the uh, attorney general challenge this proposed merger of Dow Chemical and DuPont on antitrust grounds. How valid are those concerns? It's a big concern. I think this current Department of Justice, I don't think any deal is a slam dunk. And certainly two of the best known names in chemistry, uh, Dow and DuPont, that's a $130 billion company they're going to create. It is definitely going to get a look. I don't think agriculture is going to drive the antitrust discussion on that. But yes, there's a lot of risk this deal doesn't get done. And what concerns in terms of antitrust or other regulatory concerns are there about the Monsanto buyer possible deal? This would be a huge one for the farm industry. Uh, you're talking about a, a sort of a one-stop shop for both seeds and pesticides for the whole world. This would be a company that would have global exposure, control upwards of 25%, maybe 30% of the world's pesticide market, a similar, maybe slightly smaller amount of the uh, seed market. This is a massive undertaking. And if this deal comes before the Department of Justice, given the importance of farm states, given the number of legislators in this country that are representing farm states, you're going to hear a major stink about it. And it's uh, one of the reasons, quite frankly, it's hard to imagine that deal getting through. What about the German side? What do their shareholders think about this deal? They've been skeptical as well. Bayer's a pretty well-diversified company. This would make the company close to 50% agriculture. The shares have suffered. The management is confident this is the right long-term bet. But Bayer offered approximately $62 billion for Monsanto. And Monsanto today, I think, is trading at a market cap of a little less than $50 billion, which is a huge spread. And that, what that tells you is the market has its doubts. The bigger the spread is, the more doubts there are about whether or not this deal will ever close. And it should be noted, too, that you know, Bayer already has, uh, Monsanto is the best known name in GMOs, but uh, Bayer has a large seed business, including a GMO business. In fact, their crop science has grown in recent years better in Monsanto. So uh, they have a lot of patents there, too. This isn't just a Monsanto game, the GMO and the seeds. The European Union is currently debating whether or not to re-license glyphosate, which is used in Monsanto's Roundup, 
And then the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States recently released a report on atrazine's harmful effects on wildlife. How might the threat of tighter regulation of their key products influence the way that these companies are seeking to consolidate? Obviously, Roundup is a very important business for Monsanto. And if they can't sell it in big parts of the world, that is going to make a difference. I think there's enough there that they and potential buyers need to be looking at it and need to be concerned with it. But I don't think at the end of the day that those threats change the calculus. So at the end of the day, what kind of impact might these mergers and acquisitions have on farmers? There is an argument to be made for vertical integration. There is an argument to be made that having, say, the one-stop shop, where you can get your seed products, your pesticides, everything from one vendor. You take out inefficiencies, say, in the distribution system. You have more resources for better research and development. You have better pricing power, but you also have more room, say, to price competitively or lower prices as need be. It's a dangerous argument. It's an argument you see anytime there's an antitrust concern, but you know, it isn't without merit. There will be better margins, better ability to develop new products for the farmers. Farmers would probably argue back really quick, but yeah, you know, if it's a monopoly, that that might not serve me well, and it's a fair point. But this is how antitrust decisions are made. This is the debate that goes back and forth. Lou Whiteman is a senior analyst with The Street, a digital financial media company. Lou, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for talking. A merger between Monsanto and Bayer is still up in the air, and so is the future of a key Monsanto product, its blockbuster weed killer, Roundup. Monsanto has built its business selling genetically modified seeds for corn and soybeans linked to the herbicide with more than 2.5 billion pounds of glyphosate, the core ingredient of Roundup, applied over the last two decades to U.S. farmland. But ever since the World Health Organization declared glyphosate a probable carcinogen in 2015, European regulatory agencies have been rethinking its future. And in May, 48 members of the European Parliament even took a test to see if glyphosate was detectable in their urine. Well, for all 48, it was. Living on Earth's Jenny Doring has our story. The most commonly used pesticide in the world faces an existential threat. If a key European Union panel doesn't renew glyphosate's license before it expires June 30th, the clock will start ticking on a six-month phase-out of some products sold in Europe. Citizens there are concerned with glyphosate's possible health effects, which include cancer now that the World Health Organization lists it as a probable carcinogen. The protests in the streets have an intensity that surprises Nathan Donnelly of the Center for Biological Diversity. European regulators thought that this was going to be a walk in the park to reapprove glyphosate. But the public is starting to speak with one voice on this. The anger and the uproar that's happening in Europe right now, you know, that decision will potentially affect people's health. Advocacy groups in the U.S. as well are closely watching the European battle over glyphosate. And Donnelly says the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is also taking note. So I think EPA right now is is waiting to see, quite frankly, how this all plays out in Europe, because the last thing they want is people protesting in the streets over here. But Tom Driscoll, the director of conservation policy and education for the U.S.-based National Farmers Union, says that a possible ban in Europe won't necessarily affect policy in the United States. We have very different approaches 
and what they do over there will not have a consequential bearing on our ability to use glyphosate in the U.S. However, it would possibly affect prices on inputs because of the loss of the European market. It might cause glyphosate to become more expensive in the U.S. Glyphosate is valuable for commodity farmers because 20 years ago, scientists at Monsanto figured out how to genetically immunize corn and soybeans against the herbicide. With Roundup Ready seeds, farmers could spray fields and kill weeds without damaging their crops. But much is still unknown about glyphosate's possible health impacts, says Nathan Donnelly. Last year, the IARC, which is the cancer research arm of the World Health Organization, found that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. They looked at epidemiological data. In at least one of the studies, glyphosate exposure was correlated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a rare form of cancer. They also looked at other lines of evidence. So DNA damage is one pathway that can lead to cancer. And they came to the conclusion that there was sufficient evidence that glyphosate could induce DNA damage. But in November 2015, the European Food Safety Authority found that glyphosate was unlikely to cause cancer in humans. And in the U.S., the EPA is taking heat for a report that also said glyphosate was unlikely to cause cancer. That report was posted online in late April, but disappeared three days later. EPA says that although the report was labeled final on every page, it was prematurely released. Donnelly blames politics for these conflicting decisions. The European Union and the EPA, unfortunately, have political considerations that they have to contend with. And ultimately, this is weakening regulatory oversight. Monsanto says that politics aren't in play and that the assessment, quote, has been one of the most thorough evaluations of an agricultural product ever conducted. But Tom Driscoll of the National Farmers Union thinks that regulatory agencies like EPA aren't evaluating pesticides for safety as effectively as they could. EPA needs more resources in order to be able to process more of these applications. As it stands, the registration process is rather tedious and expensive, so the crop protectant companies are under tremendous pressure to maximize profits on the products that do make it through registration, and that kind of crowds other options out of the market. To complicate matters, the studies only focus on glyphosate. But herbicides like Roundup include additional ingredients to help the glyphosate get into plant tissues. Even less is known about what effects these extra ingredients and other pesticides on the market might have on human and environmental health. Nathan Donnelly again. I think all of this focus on glyphosate is, is really important, and it's helping push the ball forward. But glyphosate is not the exception, it's the rule. There are many, many pesticides that are known carcinogens, and most pesticides are associated with some sort of adverse health effects. Health effects not limited to cancer. Some researchers also suspect glyphosate is an endocrine disruptor that can hijack the body's hormonal system. The European Union has just days to decide whether or not to relicense glyphosate, but it could take years to determine the safety of this and other pesticides in common use. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring.
While European regulators wrestle with glyphosate, here in the U.S., regulators are assessing atrazine, which is made by Syngenta. Atrazine is already banned in Europe, though it is the number two weed killer in the U.S., and the EPA recently found the accumulation of atrazine in birds, fish, and mammals at concerning levels of toxicity. The EPA has yet to release its human health assessment, and there is now a comment period before its final report on the wildlife impacts of atrazine. One of its most controversial uses involves plantation forestry, where it is sometimes sprayed in combination with 2,4-D, another potent herbicide, to promote the monoculture of evergreens on timberland that has been clear-cut. Much of this spraying has happened in Oregon, where Lisa Arkin of the group Beyond Toxics is based, and she joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me on the show. How is atrazine used out in the environment? Well, here in Oregon... Atrazine is used by loading up a helicopter with a chemical soup and then spraying that from a machine with a rotating blade. So you're very much dispersing this out into the environment and blanketing your ecosystem with it. Of course, in farming, it would be sprayed by crop dusters or by tractors with booms on them. What effects from atrazine have been documented in uh, ecosystems already? Atrazine has been shown to be very bio-persistent in the environment. So because it maintains its toxicity, it's posing a chronic risk to fish, to amphibians, and other vertebrates, including mammals. And as its concentrations get built up in the environment, it's considered to adversely impact the reproductive function of these living organisms. And that is a major concern because if reproduction is disrupted, then you aren't going to have the continuation of a species. Atrazine is an endocrine disruptor that can actually chemically castrate amphibians and reptiles. We're not even sure just how much it could impact the reproductive system of a mammal, but it causes frogs and reptiles to be unable to procreate. How do humans get exposed to atrazine? Of course, obviously, if it's being sprayed from a helicopter overhead, that's kind of obvious, but otherwise. Atrazine is showing up in our drinking water. You might be aware that there was a multi-million dollar lawsuit that was recently settled with Syngenta, the maker of atrazine, because atrazine was found in the finished drinking water of over 100 cities in the United States. So we can be exposed by drinking water that we believe is safe to consume. And of course, if that water is being consumed by a pregnant woman or a toddler or even an adolescent whose reproductive system is in the process of changing, that could cause significant adverse impacts for that individual. Atrazine has been associated with some reproductive anomalies such as hypospadias, where the penis is malformed, and another birth defect where the intestines are on the outside of the body instead of within the abdominal cavity. So if the forestry industry wanted to stop using atrazine for their Douglas fir forest, what would be, in your view, the more ecologically responsible way to do this? If we had selective harvesting, if we had biodiverse forests rather than a monocrop. If we made sure that we were protecting drinking water, aquatic habitats for fish, 
and wildlife habitat, if those were our priorities in addition to supporting a healthy forest economy, we could accomplish all of that without the use of atrazine. So let's say that the EPA decides, you know what, atrazine really isn't particularly safe in the way that it's being used right now. It should either be banned or severely restricted. What will be the long-term effects of that? First of all, there are other alternatives that are less harmful if you've got to use a chemical. And second of all, there are non-chemical alternatives. And I believe that's where we really have to focus. In Oregon, the chunk of economic benefit from organic farming is growing rapidly each and every year. If you're talking about the economy and the effects of taking atrazine off the market for the agricultural economy, I think we won't see any effect at all. Um, You're an environmental justice organization. Why is atrazine a matter of environmental justice in your view? Atrazine and other pesticides definitely are an environmental justice issue because the people who bear the greatest burden to their exposures are usually communities that are low income or people of color, and the workers who are assigned the jobs of spraying these chemicals. We find here in Oregon that often it is minority workers, so we're talking Latino or Asian workers that are asked to spray these chemicals, I should say, are told to spray these chemicals and are not even required to have a license. Also, the communities that live the closest to agricultural fields or the forests that are used for industrial purposes to produce Douglas fir and where atrazine is sprayed by helicopter are often not only lower income communities and working class communities, they are people who have less access to political decision makers. They're the ones who are most impacted, but they are the ones whose voices are least heard. Lisa Arkin is executive director of Beyond Toxics, based in Eugene, Oregon. Lisa, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. Coming up, the delights of bird watching from the comfort of one's own computer. Nest cams are just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Let's see what's up beyond the headlines now. Peter Dykstra of Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org, has been examining that world, and he joins us from Conyers, Georgia. Hey, it must be getting nice and toasty down there now, Peter, huh? It's pretty warm here, Steve. But you know what? I had a little fun this week looking into the many, many twists and turns in the environmental portfolio of one Donald Trump. Perhaps you've heard of him? I have. But, you know, Peter, this is only an hour-long show. I don't know if we have enough time. Gotcha. Well, let me just give you a few highlights then. You know how Mr. Trump has said that climate change is a hoax or pseudoscience or a scam? Well, reporters Ben Adler and Rebecca Lieber took a look at a 2009 full-page New York Times ad calling for strong action on climate change during the upcoming Copenhagen Climate Summit. And you'll never guess who's among the business leaders that signed it. Not the Donald. Well, yeah, not just the Donald, but pretty much the Donald's whole family. His daughter, Ivanka Trump, sons Eric, and of course, the Donald Jr., And who are the other business leaders? 
For business leaders are positively the most un-Trump-like collection of entrepreneurs and big thinkers you could ever imagine, like Ben and Jerry, philanthropist Jeffrey Skoll, Martha Stewart, Deepak Chopra, and the founders of Patagonia, Chipotle, Seventh Generation, Aveda, and the creators of Barney that Dinosaur and the Blue Man Group, all in there with Mr. Trump. So I guess Mr. Trump was for climate action before he was against it. Yeah, but only for a couple of months. Two months later, during the Northeast's historically snowy winter of 2010, he called on the Nobel Prize Committee to strip Al Gore of his Nobel because it was snowing where Trump lived. Okay. Hey, what else have you brought us? I brought you super bacteria, Steve. The news agency Reuters says it's reviewed two unpublished studies that found bacterial enzymes that produce antibiotic resistance. Some have called them the nightmare bacteria in the waters where Rio de Janeiro plans to stage Olympic swimming, rowing, canoeing, and sailing events in August. Not exactly welcome news for a beleaguered nation dealing with the Zika virus, a failing economy, and a political scandal that has President Dilma Rousseff in a sort of a head of state timeout waiting her impeachment trial. <laughs> Bad times indeed for Brazil. But uh, tell me more about the superbacteria. Well, these studies were done in 2013 and 2014, but public health experts say there haven't been any significant improvements in Rio's water pollution problems since then, so conditions are probably about the same. Those enzymes help build resistance to standard antibiotics. Now, superbacteria are usually only found in hospital situations, not at places like the Copacabana and Ipanema and the Olympic sailing venue at Guanabara Bay. The range of risks from superbacteria include infections in the lungs, bloodstream, gastrointestinal tract, and urinary systems, as well as meningitis and possibly some illnesses that are fatal. And some scientists have already recommended that the Olympics be moved or postponed due to the Zika threat alone. Well, they have, but the World Health Organization says that would be overkill. But the WHO also doesn't require testing for superbacteria to make sure recreational waters, like those that are going to be used in the Olympics, are safe. So stay tuned. Okay, Peter. Hey, what do you have for us this week from the History Vault? On June 20th, 1979, President Jimmy Carter had the only press conference ever held on the White House roof. He dedicated an array of 32 passive solar panels designed to help produce hot water for the White House. A generation from now, this solar heater can either be a curiosity, a museum piece, an example of a road not taken, or it can be just a small part of one of the greatest and most exciting adventures ever undertaken by the American people. But Peter, as I recall, those solar panels vanished from the White House shortly after Jimmy Carter himself left the White House. That's absolutely right. They were taken down during the Reagan administration and promptly forgotten until a young sleuth using the Freedom of Information Act found them in 1991. They were tossed into a heap in a government warehouse, not unlike the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And what did this young sleuth do? Oh, I'm not going to brag or anything, but the youthful sleuth was me. I was technically still young in 1991, and nobody's called me that for quite a while. And full disclosure, the solar panels were pretty primitive, basically little bathtubs to heat up hot water. They were eventually shipped to Unity College of Maine using a federal law that allows nonprofits to claim unused federal property. Thanks, Peter. And Peter Dykstra is with uh, Environmental Health News, ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon. And you can find more on these stories at our website, LOE.org.
The calls of guillemots and terns and the crash of ocean waves surround a pair of puffins nesting in Maine at the Seal Island National Wildlife Refuge. You can hear and watch them, too, thanks to Nest Cams. These weatherproof cameras, operated by the National Audubon Society, provide an intimate look into the lives and homes of wild birds. As nesting season gets underway, we called up Steve Cress. He's director of the National Audubon Seabird Restoration Program, known as Project Puffin, that he told us about last year. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Steve. Hey, it's my pleasure to be back, Steve. So let's start by you telling us a bit about Project Puffin's bird camps. The cameras are located on remote Seal Island National Wildlife Refuge, which is about 18 miles off of Rockland, Maine. And it's a remarkable setting for cams. This island is so remote that you can't really see it from the mainland. You have to go on a boat for hours to get to it. The cams uh, show us the world on Seal Island above ground and underground. And this permits us to get new insight into the lives of seabirds. So how many of these cams do you have, and uh, how long have they been out there? We've had cams on Seal Island now five years. One of them sits on a remote point of land that, where the puffins come in, what we call the puffin loafing ledge. This is a spot where puffins come to socialize, just to sort of hang out. We also have a cam underground inside of a puffin burrow. This camera shows the pair of puffins billing, preening, incubating their egg, the moments of hatching, the tender feeding of the chick, and finally, the chick leaving the island by itself. So how does the presence of the cameras affect these birds? Well, the camera is a small little box that sits in the back of the burrow, and the birds just see it as another rock. We have a team of interns, uh, young biologists, that are living on Seal Island, and they are in charge of protecting the birds, and when necessary, they can help adjust the cameras. Occasionally, the puffins will send a squirt of guano in the wrong direction, and it can hit the camera straight on. And then, of course, we hear about it from all the viewers right away. So the interns, it's a good thing they're living not too far away. They can go out, they can pull the cam out, and they can clean it off and pop it back in, and then everybody's happy again. Ugh, yuck. Well, the, the interns are surrounded by bird guano. This is nothing new to them. What do you think the public learns from these wildlife camps? The public is learning about the, the lives of birds at a level that they have no way of knowing before. Our friends at explore.org have not only given us the grant to do this work, they've also helped us design a citizen science project with this borough in which viewers can record the feedings that come into the chick and even identify the kinds of fish. And here's another important part about this, Steve, because they're telling us about the forage fish in the area around the nesting islands. And the forage fish are changing because of climate and they're changing because of the impacts of fisheries. And this pair of puffins is telling us all of that. So how many people are watching these birds, do you think? Oh, last year, there were over 3 million viewer pages opened, and, and they were viewed all over the world. Now, sometimes uh, nest camps can show some pretty harsh realities. There are those chicks that don't make it. Sometimes there are attacks from predators or even parent birds. What kind of responses have you had on this from the public? Well, I think that the cameras give new insight that people have never noticed before, and that insight is sometimes surprising, sometimes shocking. 
for example, last year, our Osprey camera, our two Ospreys named Rachel and Steve, much to our shock, a bald eagle came in and within seconds snatched the chicks right while people were watching. Some people were very upset. But these things happen. Whether we're seeing it or not, this is predation. And predation happens so quick. And without predation, these predatory birds would, wouldn't be able to live. So uh, let's go take a look now at one of these uh, nest cams. What's the URL I should use? Explore.org. And I can see the Puffin Burrow live now. So I'm going to click on that. I'm hearing chirping. And then I'm seeing the puffin who looks like he or she could be sitting on an egg. Well, there's a couple of them there. The puffins that bred in this burrow faithfully for the past four years at least apparently did not come back this year. Not sure what happened to them. And there's a new pair in there. But as far as I know, there's not an egg yet. But any day we're hoping that there will be an egg and this new pair will then be the new owners of this burrow. How do I tell which one is the girl and which one's the boy? The one with the bigger beak might be the boy. Male and female look very similar. The pair that had been in there for the last several years were named Phoebe and Finn. The names of these birds usually come from the viewers. And they named uh, Phoebe first, and they were convinced that Phoebe was the female and Finn was the male. But when we actually captured them, clearly Phoebe was the guy. Now uh, the one by the entrance is giving me the side profile. It's probably a guy, you know, preening his feathers here. <laughs> hey, uh, how do you decide which habitats, nests, and species to put on a camera? Species that have a long breeding cycle, actually preferable, lets us have something of interest to watch for a long time. And this pair is going to give us an even longer show, I think, because we've had this long period of sort of getting to know each other and getting comfortable in the burrow and they haven't even laid the egg yet. We got three more months after the egg is laid. Six weeks to incubate that egg, another six weeks to, to raise the chick. It's gonna be a lot of fun. That burrow is just gonna be so informative to people. Steve, please tell me about your favorite bird or pair of birds. I'm particularly fond of Rachel and Steve on Hog Island at the Audubon camp. They're right in the middle of the hubbub of all the comings and goings of the Audubon campers. We see them flying in and out. Though I tend to be particularly fond of the puffins, of course. Steve, before you go, the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, where you teach, and of course the Audubon Society, operate these cameras in wildlife refuges and sanctuaries in a variety of places. So what other nest camps should we be tuning into? Explore has a whole range of them. They're all spread out on that one homepage. The Lab of Ornithology has its own set of cameras inside of uh, nest boxes. A famous one is for red-tailed hawks in Ithaca, but they have an albatross cam in Hawaii and many other cams. So that's another site on the All About Birds website. Steve Kress is director of the Audubon Society's Seabird Restoration Program, otherwise known as Project Puffin. Thanks, Steve, for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. We're taking flight to the high cliffs of the Pacific coast now, where it's nesting season for many seabirds. And as Michael Stein explains in today's bird note, some birds lay eggs with a special adaptation to keep those eggs safe. 
Does this raucous laughter sound a little deranged as it rings out above the crash of ocean waves? The voices belong to birds, to a nesting colony of common murres, standing on narrow ledges high on the steep face of a sea cliff. Precarious as their nest site is, common murres nest by the thousands along the Pacific coast, perhaps millions north along the Bering Sea. The chocolate brown murres stand nearly a foot and a half tall, on legs set far back on their bodies. Add to this their sharply pointed bills, and murres look much like the northern equivalent of penguins of the southern hemisphere. Their eggs are specially shaped to survive a narrow cliff ledge. Shaped like a pear, the single large blue egg is pointed at one end and blunt at the other, so it spins on the ledge rather than tumbling into the sea below. The common murr's guttural call carries well over the roar of the waves. A natural laugh track, far richer than human laughter canned for a sitcom. <laughs> I'm Michael Stein. For pictures, glide on over to our website, LOE.org. We leave you this week in the rain in Costa Rica in the Rincón de la Vieja National Park in the northwest. In the treetops, a troop of golden-mantled howling monkeys calls to each other across the cloud forest. They're fairly large monkeys, two to three feet long, and mostly black, except for a distinctive golden fringe down their sides. Their diet consists of leaves, and they spend most of their time eating and sleeping. Andrew Roth recorded these noisy primates for the CD, Natural Sounds of Costa Rica. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Annika Green, Jay Feinstein, Emmett Fitzgerald, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Charlotte Ruddy, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.